If you don't already know me, my name is Ben, and um, I have the privilege of explaining a little bit of the details in that particular passage that Tom read out to us, which he read out excellently. Um, you will do have to excuse me, because this week I have been a little bit unwell, and so you may have noticed that in my voice. So if I do occasionally cough or sip a glass of water, my, uh, my future apologies also, just a quick shout-out to my parents who are listening to me this week. If you see them at morning tea, feel free to go over and say hello to them. They will not bite, I promise. Is Jesus really Lord over our world? That's the question that we're going to be thinking about this morning as we finish off our second week on this short series on Jesus' Lordship. In the summer of 2019-2020, the east coast of Australia experienced some of the worst bushfires in our history, burning 5.3 million hectares and killing 42 people. While this year, Sydney has recorded more rain than it usually gets in a whole year, the effects of this amount of rain has caused great floods, amounting to lots of damage to properties and human life. With such reoccurring patterns of extreme weather conditions, we've all been informed that this is the result of global warming. In the last year, two reports have been issued by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This panel comprises many astound scientists that help inform governments on policymaking. And in these latest reports, the debate isn't whether climate change is a thing, but around how catastrophic the weather will be in the future and how effective and affordable are our current solutions. Even in the lead-up to our current election, one of the issues that, causing, that is causing the most concern is climate change, specifically among young people. We see this concern with a recent group of children who brought a class-action lawsuit against the Australian government over its failure to provide a duty of care to protect young people from climate change due to ongoing approval of new coal mines. This result has been since overturned in the federal court. And it may seem kind of ridiculous to some of us, but we need to admit that there is a genuine fear in the community over the state of our world. We're facing challenging times ahead. Unfortunately, I'm not a scientist, so I can't help with our immediate problem, but I can provide an answer to our question over whether Jesus is still Lord over our world, despite the fact it's in such bad shape. My goal, is by, my goal by providing an answer is to alleviate some of our fears for the future, but also provide an answer if someone were to ask you whether Jesus is still Lord of our world, considering the shape that it's in. So, what is the explanation? Well, to answer that question today, we're going to be looking at this particular section in 2 Peter. Peter's writing to an audience who are being told misinformation by false prophets. And so he's writing to them to ensure that his audience's salvation is secure. And one of the accusations that these false prophets have been spreading is whether Jesus is actually going to be returning. You see it there in verse 4 on the screen. Where is this promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. 
This could so easily be something that someone would mutter on the streets, right? It's been 2,000 years since Jesus left us and nothing seems to change. The world keeps on turning. People appear for a time and then pass away. Time continues to move forward and God totally seems removed from the daily activities of our world. So what does Peter say to such an accusation? Has God forgotten about his promises? No, indeed, for we are left with two past interactions that still indicate that God has the power to intervene in our world. The first interaction comes in the very beginning, where God spoke and things started to occur. And one of the things that occurred was that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. You see it there in verse 5. The significance of this being that There was nothing within our created world. That there was nothing in our created world. Just empty nothingness. And as a master artist, things started to pop up. Things that were intelligently designed and aesthetically pleasing. See, this was God's first interaction with our world. The second happened shortly afterwards. That instead of creating, God came to destroy. We see this in verse 6 that the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. We all know the story that Peter is referring to in this verse. It's Noah's story where God rescued Noah's family after he regretted the people that he had made and so consequently decided to destroy them as a result of their rampant sin. And so in light of these two interactions, there's no doubt in Peter's mind that God will keep his final promise, which will occur in verse 7, which says this. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Excuse me. (coughs) When you read in verse 7, I suspect that one day detail has caught your eye. It's the idea of coming fire. But you might be thinking, why fire? Well, it's a common theme in the Old Testament that when God brings judgment, he brings fire. Take Sodom and Gomorrah, where Abraham's cousin Lot fled to the plains of Zorah. The Lord rained down burning sulfur on that city for its foul acts. Or in the desert, as Israel camped at the foot of Mount Sinai after escaping Egypt, they spoke of God as being a consuming fire, as they dared not approach him. See, it's a common picture in the Old Testament, and one that's predicted in the Psalms and the Prophets, that when God comes in judgment, he comes with fire. And it's these small pictures of past fire that lead us to this ultimate picture of cosmic fire, of judgment against the ungodly. But you might have noticed that this fire isn't just reserved for the ungodly, but for the whole universe. As, it's, as Peter says in verse 12, you might want to look at this in, these, in the Bibles that are open in front of you. The heavens will be set on fire and dissolve the heavenly bodies that will melt as they burn. Heavenly bodies, that seems like an odd expression, but what that means is just plainly that the stars and the planets that are above us in the cosmos. See, just like 
gold is melted to remove its impurities, so it is with the whole created order that it may be brought into its former glory. And it's this promise which our created world has been longing for as it will be set free from the bondage that was subjected to it by our sin. That's what Paul is referring to in Romans 8, chapter, verses 16 to 20. And the one who brings this fire is the Lord Jesus Christ, as God's chosen agent. For he told us that when he visited, that he would return in judgment. See, currently he's waiting at the Father's right-hand side to be given the nod of approval to start this process. For it is only the Father who knows the time when these things will take place. Now, there's a picture there of um, two siblings, and I would love you to try to guess the age difference between these two people. Does anyone want to have a guess? Don't be shy. Just call out a number. Nine months. Brett, you would be wrong. It'd be less time. Anyone want to beat Brent's offer of nine months? Yes, John. No, they're not twins. Very good try, though. That would have been sneaky of me. Now, remarkably, there's only six and a half months between them both, which is the shortest age gap between siblings in the UK. The brother and sister are known as tandem twins because they were born in the same nine to ten month period. Just after three months, three weeks, sorry, of giving birth, the mother went to see her GP and he was shocked when he realized that she was pregnant once again. Now, if you had spoken to this mother before her checkup, you wouldn't think that she was pregnant again, would you? It defies common belief. But if you continue to doubt after the doctor's assessment, then you would look rather silly, wouldn't you? Now, these false prophets are deliberately overlooking Jesus' word that he will return. They're looking kind of silly, if you ask me. They're ignoring how God has intervened in the past. They failed to see that Jesus will be Lord over his world. And we need to be careful not to overlook Jesus' return like they have and make our lives too comfortable now in the present. But the question that is still puzzling is why is God still waiting if he is Lord over our world? Hasn't our world gone through enough pain for him not to return already? He can intervene. He's made that clear. But why hasn't he intervened? That's the question I want us to think through. Well, Peter's answer to that question comes in verses 8 to 10. And to begin, he gives us a little bit of a riddle here. He states that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Which for me is confusing. Is Peter saying that God experiences time slowly, as if one day were a thousand years? Or is he saying that God experiences time quickly, as if one thousand years were a day? And the answer to that question is yes. All the above. God is eternal and not bound by time at all. Now, there is an island off the north coast of Norway called Sommery. And from May 18th till July 26th, this island no longer keeps time. They leave their wristwatches in the drawer. And it's in this period that the sun doesn't set. 
And so people on the island aren't limited by, limited by the night time anymore. So if you wanted to paint your house at midnight, you can. No one's going to judge you for it. If you want to mow your lawn at 2 a.m., you can. You don't need to worry about whether your neighbours are sleeping. If you want to go for a swim and make as much noise as you want at 4 a.m. in the morning, guess what? You can. See, these people, they don't want to be limited by time. And that's exactly what God is. He's not limited by time. From our perspective, we may feel God has overlooked his promise to return. But for him, everything is running to plan and is on schedule. Now, in verse 9, we see Port Peter continues his thought by saying that God is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some counsel owners, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should repent. And I think verse 9 is telling, isn't it? It's not that he has overlooked his promise, but that he's being patient to orchestrate it. Now, I'm sure you've heard the expression, patience is a virtue. Because I think patience is tremendously difficult to do well. Patience, in my mind, is to endure discomfort without complaint. Like a child who um, has to go to the shopping centre with his parents. It's in those occasions the, children, the child needs to show patience to their parent as they endure the boredom of being taken around a shopping centre as their parent does their daily errands. In most occasions, when you need to wait, you have to exhibit some type of patience towards someone because the urge in all of us is to circumvent our discomfort so that we may be satisfied. So in the case for the child, the way they overcome their discomfort is for them to be given food or snacks or a fully charged telephone so that they can be satisfied. That's why parents, that's why, it, that's why being patient is so difficult because we don't, because it doesn't, it's, because who doesn't want their boredom to be overcome? That's why we thank children for showing patience because it runs directly against their very natures, right? But for the case of God's patience, it's more like he is a landlord and we are tenants that haven't paid rent for the last six months. Where God endures the pain of not getting what he deserves so that his discomfort will be satisfied. But that's why God is so different from us, right? For if the roles were reversed, we wouldn't tolerate such injustice. But instead of bringing to account everyone by bringing his fire of judgment, he waits in love for as many to reach repentance, which is for people to admit that they have done wrong and to ask Jesus to cover their sin. For God waits while he puts up with the discomfort because he knows that for him to send his son would be worse than what our world is currently going through. Which is crazy, because we know our world isn't in great shape. I, uh, I heard a, a story of a grandfather that was looking after his granddaughter, right? And she was bored, and so he decided to circumvent her boredom by making her a puzzle. Um, it was a magazine picture of a world 
and he cut it up into many different pieces, thinking it would amuse her for a long time, as the puzzle was mainly of either blue ocean or green land. But after a short time, the granddaughter came back with the puzzle completely completed, and the grandfather was amazed. How would she be able to complete this so quickly? Well, she informed him that the task was easy when she flipped the pieces over and did the picture of the people on the other side. It's this story that really summarizes the heart of God, where God wants to heal the world by healing those on his world so that many will receive the healing that comes through repentance. So to recap, we have seen that Jesus is still Lord over our world, despite it being in bad shape. We know that he has intervened in the past and is waiting for his father's permission to bring it back to its former glory. But God is choosing to wait in love to send his son so that many people will come to accept his invitation of repentance. For he wishes no one to perish. And if you are someone who hasn't accepted this invitation, then today may be a good day. For as much as God is waiting, the return of his son is eminent, in which no one knows the time. As verse 10 expresses, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So it's best not to wait and take for granted the Lord's patience, lest you be found on the other side of his discomfort. In um, some senses, we have answered the question that was addressed at the start. Jesus is still Lord over our world and he's waiting to return so that, he may, so that, we, so that many will put their faith in him. But in the meantime, what is it that we should do? Well, I've got two things. I have one side point, whereas I think Peter has a main point, which we will see in verses 11 to 13 that we'll close with. Firstly, my point. As Christians, we all, and me included, need to be careful not to abuse this particular teaching. We may be tempted to think that if the world is going to be renewed by fire, that doesn't really matter what we do in the present. In response to our community's growing fear of climate change, then I think it's right that we should consider how we can all lessen our impact on our planet. For to do so is to show others our care of an issue that has direct effect on them, along with many other marginalised people that we may not, may not even be aware of. To be conscious of this will involve much thought and it may incur more expense to your budget, but I truly think it's worthwhile. That's just a side note. For there is something more significant that Peter wants us to learn in response to Jesus' return. And it comes in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hasting the coming of the day of God? What Peter is saying is that if God's return is eminent, then what we do in the present is important. For we are no no longer living for whatever is good in this world, but for the world to come. So if someone... If somehow I received a secret from God that Jesus is coming back on Tuesday, what would your Monday look like? You wouldn't go to work, right? I'd hope that your priorities would change quite swiftly. See, this same question was asked to a missionary I know. 
His days were filled with running Bible studies and meeting up with students to read the Bible at the local university. And then when he got home, he would do the same thing with his family. So when he was asked this question, his response was to change nothing, for he was doing the best to live a life of holiness and godliness, which is really to live a life for God that's completely different from the world around us. Now, if you admit that your Mondays would look different, then you're not living up to the future that God is going to bring. For our home is not on this decaying earth, but a new, our new home is one which the new heavens and the new earth will exist, where righteousness will dwell. So we should let our Mondays be consistent with this reality, which should compel us to lead as many people into God's kingdom as possible. For if we truly care about our world, then the best thing we can do is to hasten the day of the Lord, as Peter indicates there in verse 12, which means that our Mondays should involve proclaiming Jesus is Lord over our whole world. To do anything else is to live inconsistently with what God is planning, planning on doing. To be honest, it's hard to change our Mondays as we have commitments that we all need to keep. But it is not unprecedented to hear of people who have taken a half day off to do scripture teaching, for example. Or if you're not in a position to take a half day off, then maybe volunteer and help out on a Friday night as a youth leader or a helper. Or if you're not available on a Friday night, then there's Sunday mornings with Kids Church. Or you can be involved in the drop-off or Aunt Day Plays, which Kim Jeng and I are involved in. Excuse me. If you haven't caught the sentiment, to be in in some form of evangelism is to hasten the Lord's coming and it should be reflected in some form of your life. Opportunities are plentiful. We all have neighbours and family members and friends and strangers that all need to hear the gospel. So let us together hasten the Lord's arrival as we wait for him to redeem us into his radiant premises. Thank you.